The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. Father, let's start off tonight with a question about Pope Leo XIII. This, this viewer writes in and says that I and many others consider Pope Leo XIII as being a great pope as he fought many of the errors and movements during his time. Are there reasons as to why he has not been canonized, considering the important encyclicals he produced and the courage he displayed during challenging times? Well, there has to be a reason why he's not canonized. Um, Leo XIII uh, is an interesting uh, pontiff. I mean, each pontiff is interesting in his own right, but Pope Leo XIII was uh, the pope between Pope Pius IX and Pope Pius X, okay? So Pope Leo XIII reigned from 1878 to 1903, which is a good period of time. Pecci is his family, P-E-C-C-I is the family name. And uh, tall, slender, ascetic, uh, bright, you know, very lively eyes when you see his pictures, very cerebral. But um, <clears throat> Pope Leo XIII is probably known uh, as one who uh, retreated from the hard-line position of Pope Pius IX and uh, decided, well, let's, let's engage the, uh, the um, revolutionaries on their own turf. Up until that time, Pope Pius IX had adopted a policy of, of just dogged resistance to the to the changes, to the revolutionary, the liberalizing, so-called liberalizing work. They were not really liberalizing at all. What they were doing was trying to liberate uh, mankind from the church, <laughs> from Christ is what they were really doing. Uh, all of the philosophical movements of the day that were anti-Christ, anti-Christian, naturalism, rationalism, and all the rest kind of fell under the broad label of liberalism which was simply meant to say that uh, your faith is your own personal faith, practice it in private, don't bother me with it, and leave it out of the public area, leave your faith at home, live it to uh, within your own soul and within your own home, and do not bring your faith into the public forum. It cannot influence... Uh, it was actually, by the way, a, a final fulfillment of, you might say, bringing to the ultimate terms Lutheranism, as Luther basically um, uh, gave us the idea that the uh, the prince, um, the prince, whoever he may be, the secular prince, uh, really is is the one who speaks for God in his area. Um, but then, if you do away with priesthood, as Luther did, and you have nothing but ministers who are functionaries and representatives of the people, then you'd have to say, well, if it's being a, a representative of the people that makes you a minister, then you'd have to say, well, actually, the prince, the ruler, is really the representative of the people par excellence. So 
<clears throat> yeah, he's really the spokesman for God. And this was basically doing what the uh, Orthodox had done in the East in tying religion to the political power uh, and the culture of the area. So, uh, so Luther accomplished that in the, in the West, pretty much. <clears throat> the idea of keeping your faith in Christ uh, private, it's between you and God, and uh, do not let it in any way influence your public behavior. And certainly, do not allow it to uh, uh, move you to try to influence the laws of the land in any way Christian. Yeah. <clears throat> well, this was uh, liberalism. And uh, Pope Pius the, 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 the Ninth was absolutely against it. You know, when you consider the way Pius the Ninth started, it, it is remarkable because he was considered to be uh, a liberal, if not the most liberal of all the cardinals, such that there was even speculation, open speculation, that he was actually a Freemason. And so when he was elected, it was kind of shocking that uh, someone with that reputation already at that time would have been elected. Remember Nubius, the Masonic writer, <coughs> whose permanent instruction had been found in the Masonic lodges of Italy, especially northern Italy, had said that the Masons had to apply themselves to uh, forming a generation of young Catholics who would then go on to become the, the priests and the monsignors and the bishops and the cardinals and finally the Pope of the future. He said, we don't necessarily want a, a, a Pope as a Mason, we just want a Pope who thinks like a Mason. <clears throat> and, uh, and then all of a sudden, I mean, after very few years, after Nubius had said, this is the work of generations, perhaps centuries, all of a sudden you have Mastai Ferretti, Cardinal Mastai Ferretti, who's elected Pope Pius IX. The Masons must have thought they really hit the jackpot. And, uh, you know, uh, Pope Pius IX wasted no time back in 1846, 1847, 1848, giving the Masons exactly what they wanted. <clears throat> they overplayed their hand. They plunged a dagger into the layman who Pope Pius IX had established at their insistence as the head of the Papal States and assassinated him right in the steps of the Quirinale Palace. And uh, Pope Pius IX was a man who suddenly saw you know, it was like a bolt from the blue, and he, he, the uh, scales fell from his eyes, and he saw the masonry exactly for what it was, and the masons for exactly who they were. And from that moment on, he became the most intransigent op uh, opponent of the masons, of the Masonic plot in the church. Denounced masonry and all of its works, communism, socialism, and all the rest. And he would not give one inch. I mean, it was so... The Masonic hatred of him became such a fevered pitch that uh, twice he had to um, actually escape from Rome because of their attacks. And uh, he um, became a prisoner of the Vatican. And not only that, uh, Pope Pius IX, uh, when he died, the effort was made to bury him in the middle of the night. They were carrying the coffin actually under the cover of darkness, a midnight procession across one of the bridges, in order to avoid the, the, uh, the violence that the Masons were threatening, to show uh, contempt for him and hatred for him. And there was actually a struggle as the Masons met the funeral cortege on the bridge, and they were struggling for the control of the casket. The Masons wanted to throw his, 
casket is arranged into the tiber. But the Catholics had a little more backbone back then than they had today, than they have today. And uh, the Masons didn't get their way. But uh, it was a, a very ugly time. And then Pope Leo XIII was elected, and he adopted a different program. He began to, oh, I, I guess we might say, he wasn't open to the ideas, <coughs> uh, but he, he changed so-called tactics or approach, saying, well, okay, okay, you've done this, you've done that, you've seized the governments, <coughs> and uh, we're going to meet you <coughs> um, line for line in, in the press. We're going to meet you at every step. We're going to oppose your ideas and we're going to go to the polls and we're going to vote in your elections. And uh, this gave, in the eyes of many people, a kind of legitimacy to what the liberals had done. Uh, as though Pope Leo XIII was going to somewhat play along and say, okay, you know, we can beat you at your own game, if you, if you will. And um, now Pope Leo XIII was a courageous man, and he had uh, the faith, there's no doubt about it. He was very devout. It was Pope Leo XIII, remember, who we read uh, back in the 1880s, had uh, the locution of Christ and Satan, Satan challenging our Lord, I will destroy your church. And our Lord telling Satan he would allow him a hundred years to, to make the effort. <clears throat> Um, and Pope Leo XIII petting that long prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, which he talked openly in the prayer about the enemies of the Church uh, trying to gain control of the papacy. And um, But still, uh, the Church lost ground during that time. She did not gain ground, she lost ground during that time. Because uh, the propagandists of the liberals always have an advantage. <clears throat> they can lie, and we can't. And uh, lies resonate with people, unfortunately. They can lie, they, they can misrepresent. Even to this day, they have an advantage, you might say, because <clears throat> to us, when we hear liberals lying, and we hear some progressives, as they like to call themselves for the moment, because the name doesn't have the stigma that liberal does, but it will very soon. Um, when, we, when we hear them selling just bald-faced lies, lies that are just so brazen that we think, how can they do that? Aren't they ashamed? And then we remind ourselves, they're not ashamed to murder babies by the millions. This is what they do. They, they murder babies by the millions every year around all the world. A lie? What's a lie to them? You know? It's nothing. They, they, they applaud themselves. The bigger, the better lie they can craft, the, the greater the hero they make out of the liar. They think, oh boy, you, that was a real good one, you know? More power to you. So they applaud the lies. That's, their whole lives are lies. <clears throat> Built on lies. So, um, now, the church did lose ground under Pope Leo XIII, such that when uh, uh, Pope Pius X was elected, he had a real job to do in uh, dealing with the modernists who had gained power. 
in the church, and he, uh, he had tried for years, he said, <laughs> to address them. <clears throat> As the Cardinal of uh, Patriarch of Venice, and then as Pope Pius the X, for the first four years of his papacy, uh, he was striving to deal with the modernists, and, and, and trying to reason with them, trying to plead with them, appeal to them, and, and finally, after four years, I mean, he was elected in August of 1903, and September 8th of 1907, Pope Pius the X issued the encyclical uh, Passione Dominici Gregis, condemning the errors of the modernists. And he says, starting out the encyclical, he had tried, he tried very hard to deal with them, to dissuade them. And pride and audacity were there, sat in the modernist house. He said these are their chief characteristics of their, of their personalities. Pride and audacity. <clears throat> and he said it was impossible to get anywhere with them. They're not honest people. You know? Um, well, between the death of Pope Pius IX and the accession of St. Pius X, you had all those years of the reign of Pope Leo XIII, about 20, 25 years. And the church actually did lose ground. I mean, you know, then you had St. Pius X, who resisted mightily so much that the, the enemies of the Christ, the enemies of Christ hated Pius X. Those who loved Christ loved St. Pius X. <laughs> and then after St. Pius X died, you got uh, uh, Della Chiesa, um, Benedict XV, who was Pope during the war years, World War I, and then Pius XI. And Pius XI was, again, no slouch, you know. Like Leo XIII, he wrote powerful encyclicals condemning the errors of liberalism and rationalism and... and <clears throat> And so on, but when it came to practice, the actual practical steps, there was the dividing line, I think. Pope Pius IX, Pope Pius X, the practical steps in dealing with this, not just thundering against the errors, but taking the practical steps to block the devices of these enemies of Christ and the Church. Pius IX and Pius X, they, they knew how to do this. They knew exactly how to deal with it. But Leo the Thirteenth, Pius the Eleventh, there were a lot of disasters for the Church during those reigns. And although they had the faith and they had the right ideas uh, philosophically and theologically, when it came to actually dealing with the modernists and the enemies of the Church, it's as though they, they just didn't really understand how to practically go about it. And the Church lost some serious ground. I mean, why would the Cristeros have been so brutally wiped out or attacked so viciously when Pope Pius XI made, a, made his peace with the Masonic government of, of Mexico? How was he taken in by this? There was something lacking in his vision. And they, uh, the, the, the valiant Catholic people of Mexico paid a dear price for that. So, um, you know, it's one thing, I mean, I, I think you'd have to say that Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius XI were good popes in a time that required great popes. 
And uh, that makes all the difference for the church, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why Pope Leo XIII, well, I mean, who would have canonized him? <clears throat> I mean, Della Chiesa during World War II wouldn't have canonized him. And, um, you know, uh, the Rati, uh, uh, Rati uh, Achille Rati, um, uh, Pius XI, I don't know if he would have had an opportunity to do so if he even thought of it, you know. Uh, Papias Twelfth. again, you know, I, I just, not that I'm an expert on the subject by any means, but I, you know, I just didn't see it happening and didn't, it didn't happen. So, um, you know, now we have, uh, or they have, we have, they have Francis up there, whom even they are getting nervous about, and they are trying to plot to somehow replace him because, uh, He's blowing the cover on the whole, on the whole plot, as it were, by being so brazen, so blatantly out of control, that even the liberals who put him in, even the modernists who put him in, are getting nervous about him. He's such a wild card um, <clears throat> that even they would like to find somebody a little bit more. I mean, they don't want to find anybody more Catholic than he is. They just want to find somebody who has a different approach who's not going to raise hackles and raise the alarm uh, people around the world, as Francis is doing. Um, but, uh, you know, in this case, I, I don't think you're going to find uh, real Catholic popes <coughs> canonizing Pope Leo XIII for his historic and, and, uh, and uh, let's say, her heroic resistance to the enemies of the faith but because of what he wrote, upholding the faith and condemning in principle modernism, you're not going to have the modernists canonize him either. Right. So I just don't think that he was really the stuff of... He wasn't uh, uh, the modernist hero to be canonized by them, and he certainly wasn't the Catholic hero in practice to stand his ground, stand in the breach, take the arrows of, of hatred of the world. And... Um, and being up at St. Pius X, certainly, by any means. And, you know, if I was speaking of, of, of popes being canonized, it seems that's, you know, the, the visible head of Christ's church. That's pretty much the, the most dignified office that a human being can, can possibly hold. And so the, the requirements for that, you know, with all this authority is going to be some, some serious responsibility. And it, it seems like there, there's some serious requirements for, for a pope to be canonized. A saint, if you think of the first however many popes, the, the terrible things that they suffered, all, all the martyrdoms mm -hmm. that they suffered. Uh, and then we had, had Pius V and the, all the tremendous things that he did. And I believe he was the last pope canonized before, uh, what was it, four centuries before Pope uh, St. Pius, Pius X was canonized. So it, it seems that it, that it takes an absolute great great pope, like you said, not just good popes, someone like Leo XIII or these mm -hmm. other popes who may have been very, very, very good popes, but not these great popes, uh, which is what it seems that it would take to be canonized. But if I, let's right, move on. Right, right. Well, you know, Tom, that's right. And, um, I mean, if a priest is supposed to be in the illuminative way of the spiritual life before he's ordained, and, uh, you know, you expect priests, which are the word that every priest for St. John Vianney or St. John Bosco, but they're not. And you elevate the responsibility from that to that of a, a supreme potted victor of Christ on earth, and what is it demanded of them? Yeah. Oh, yes. You know, every little uh, failing and weakness is going to be magnified, you know, just under the microscope. It's going to have 
serious, serious consequences. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge responsibility. And, you know, no wonder St. Pius X, when he was elected, elected, uh, said in his first encyclical that he was not, you know, mortified, was not humbled, was not, but he was terrified. <laughs> he was terrified of the responsibility. Uh, and it, he explained why he thought the Antichrist might be in the world already or about to come. He referred to St. Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians chapter 2 as saying that he actually had an honest-to-goodness fear that he would be one who would uh, have to then or very soon uh, confront the Antichrist and the power of the Antichrist in the world. That, that seemed to be a common theme among many many saints that they that they would often um, attempt to to reject uh, offers of, of the office of the papacy or or some other great see just because of the the serious responsibility that, that came with that and that's like in the the imitation of Christ you read Thomas Kempis I believe mentions that several times about how it's so much better to be um, to be an inferior rather than a superior just because of, of the great responsibility mm -hmm. that comes with it and the, the, the verse yeah. comes to mind he who much is given much is expected um, well you know the Peter principle is that you're, you're promoted to the level of incompetence you know you succeed in this you succeed you get promoted you succeed in that level you get promoted you succeed in that level you get promoted you're promoted, promoted until you don't succeed anymore and then you don't get promoted anymore because you found the level of your incompetence <clears throat> but how many good priests have refused well, not refused, but have, have really resisted being consecrated bishops. Mm -hmm. How many how, how many priests and bishops have resisted being named cardinals? You know, and how many have you know dreaded the idea of becoming the pope because not that they didn't love our Lord, but they just felt honest to goodness they did not feel that they were worthy and capable. And then you had a Pope Celestine V who actually resigned. Because he had been elected, felt he wasn't doing a very good job because he didn't have the practical sense to actually govern. Could have been, he was great, he's a saint. But he felt he didn't have the talent. Because it takes a certain amount of, of you know, self-warfare and uh, <clears throat> ability, natural ability to govern. Too. And he just felt he didn't have it. And that's actually why he was elected, by those who thought they could use him. And he realized that and he graciously stepped down, you know. Um, <clears throat> And uh, when he was basically imprisoned afterwards to prevent him from being a rival, uh, he was happy as all get out because he wanted to be a monk, he wanted to sell, he just wanted to live. And when he was imprisoned, I think it was in the Castle of Gandolfo, if I wasn't mistaken, no, in the Castle of Sant'Angelo, uh, for a while, he seemed to say, well, this is now finally what I've wanted all along, you know, my little cell and chapel to pray, and uh, this is my vocation. So, uh, but that's what saints are made of. Um, one thing's for sure, though, St. Pius X, feeling very unworthy and feeling uh, perhaps overmatched by the demands of the office, completely committed himself into the hands of God's loving grace and uh, cooperated fully with the grace of God, as far as we know. And this humble, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, his name, Italian, uh, translates into basically Joe Taylor. And somebody is very, very humble, and, and I mean, how ordinary in that can you get? I mean, that name, Giuseppe Sanato, you know. Uh, you might say a common man, a common man extraordinary. He was such a common man. But by the grace of God, uh, as St. Paul said, his grace in me had not been void. We need another Pius, Pius X 
And, um, you know, that's what we should be praying for. Um, but in, in any case, uh, Pope Leo XIII was not that. Sure. All right. Well, Father, I've got a question here concerning St. Peter. Uh, so this, this viewer says that I recently rewatched a Vatican documentary by National Geographic where it was mentioned that the bones of St. Peter that were found in the late 1930s under the Sistine Chapel were declared authentic by Paul VI. Should we be skeptical of this because a modernist pope made such a declaration? Well, uh, the, the remains of St. Peter were found under the, under the Vatican. Okay, they, they were actually not found under the Sistine Chapel. Okay. Uh, they were actually found under the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica. Makes a big difference. Why? Because the basilica was originally built in that spot by Constantine, no less. And uh, the basilica was positioned. It was actually cornered into a hillside, the Vatican Hill, which required the movement of uh, thousands and thousands of cubic yards or cubic meters of soil. <clears throat> Not only displacing them from the hill, because it's digging into the hill, but down below, uh, and the, and the, as the hillside falls away, and yet the basilica had to be built on a pl flattened area, on a platform, as I say, dug into this and filled in down below. An enormous basilica at the time. <clears throat> in fact, they have a model of the Constantinian basilica uh, in the, uh, on, the, on the route of the tour of the excavations of the, uh, under St. Peter's. Now, when you see, you see a very telling model, very, very, very instructive model of the Basilica of Constantine, built about the year 320 or so. And uh, it was your classic Basilica style. Um, even with the... Uh, uh, the great atrium, the great garden, you know, which is called the, the Paradisum because it was such a beautiful garden, as the entry, the forecourt, as it were, into the basilica. As you know, basilica I mean, it comes from the, the Greek word basileia, right? It, it has to do with the, the great hall of justice, the judgment hall of the emperors. Um, and... Um, and so this always, you know, it was the hall of the imperial, imperial authority. Uh, the church received its first basilica as a gift from Constantine, who gave the, the um, basilica of the, the Lateran to Pope Sylvester I. But Constantine was not finished with that. He had basilicas built as churches, as monuments over the tombs of the apostles. St. Peter being one of them and the foremost of them, but also St. Paul and some others also. And so um, the St. Peter's Basilica that he built was actually meant to be one enormous monument in memory of St. Peter and as testimony of, his, of the, the dignity of his office that Christ conferred upon him. But the basilica was built in such a way, was oriented in such a way that the, the altar 
the central altar of the basilica would be right over the remains of St. Peter. Now, uh, of course, Constantine did not determine where those remains were buried. He had to orient the basilica around where those remains had been buried on June 29th in the year 67 AD, when St. Peter died in the circus of Domitian and and Nero, who finished that basilica, that, that circus, and ordered the death of Peter there in that circus. And we know that uh, at least we have very good evidence to, to be convinced that at the end of the day, as St. Peter's lifeless body hung inverted on that cross, that his body was taken down by Greek Christian slaves who were used for that very distasteful task of cleaning out the gore. And they carried the body of St. Peter up the hill of the Vatican, which afforded a certain amount of cover for them because of the hypogea, the above-ground tomb monuments that were built all over the wall, all over the side of the hill. <clears throat> and so they could go through the narrow passages way, passageways with the body of St. Peter and the, uh, without being observed, especially in the light of uh, dusk, the setting sun at the end of the day's games. <clears throat> and they went beyond the uppermost hypogea, oh, maybe, uh, I don't know, 200, 300 feet beyond. <clears throat> and they buried the, the body of St. Peter there on the Vatican Hill, used some terracotta slabs to, you know, uh, line the inside of the of the opening, and uh, actually one of the slaves <clears throat> scratched in gr- the Greek letters, Petros, Peter, just crudely scratched there, and they sealed the tomb, and then hurriedly went back to work. And evidently nobody noticed their absence. And as time went on, the, the above-ground mausolea, more and more were, were built up farther up, creeping up the Vatican Hill, until they were finally ready to overrun the spot where St. Peter's body was buried. It was very well known by Christians. I mean, the Christians were already coming there from around the empire to visit that grave of St. Peter and to ask St. Peter and St. Paul to pray for them. Truly earliest testimony of the earliest Christians to the idea of the saints praying for us here on earth. So during a time of peace, uh, one of the popes, actually, probably, what was it, the late, late second century, uh, actually bought that ground, built a wall, like a, a, a wall against all of the Hibajaya that were down below in the hill, Call, and they had it succoed in red and uh, actually built a marble monument right over the spot because the wall now was backed up against the monuments and right at the base was where St. Peter was buried. A, a marble monument was built. It looks like an altar of uh, slab on two pillars, but it was too high. These pillars are about six feet high, so no one went off for mass there. It was like a canopy over the over the uh, tomb of St. Peter, and uh, we actually have the testimony of a priest, Gaius, who visited and wrote about it. 
back then and to this day I mean it's sometimes referred to as the the trophy of Gaius trophium meaning like the monument <coughs> that Gaius wrote about for St. Peter and um, now we're talking about you know 67 AD the remains of St. Peter buried there and then <coughs> 200 uh, a little, little less than actually 350 uh, 250 years later uh, Constantine building a basilica over that. And so it's kind of interesting because in building a basilica, he actually had to level that terrain. He actually chopped off the tops of some of those mausoleums. And these were family burial sites. He probably had to compensate those people quite a bit, you know. If he did, and he actually had those mausolea then filled in with soil, packed with soil, because they had to be a foundation for part of his basilica. <clears throat> and remember, <clears throat> if you were to go through the sanctuary of Constantine's basilica at that time, the way he built it, as you were approaching the high altar, <clears throat> you're walking over at some point those, the remains of those above-ground tombs that had been shaved off, you know, and you're walking above them, and you're coming, it's all underneath you then, in his basilica, the red wall, and then the reins of St. Peter are just below, and there's the altar, the central altar of St. Peter's basilica. That's how it's all oriented, you know. Well, St. Peter's original, the original St. Peter's basilica built by Constantine, stood for about 1,200 years. Think about that. I mean, a building actually <coughs> standing... It was built in the 320 or something, and standing around 1,200 years plus. That's quite a feature. And some areas of the basilica, and it's, it's, you know, we're, we're becoming rather enfeebled and not necessarily safe. So in the um, late 1500s, uh, the Pope decided we're going to have to rebuild this. And so what they did was they, they rebuilt, they built a new St. Peter's Basilica over the old one, piece by piece section by section. They even extended the modern St. Peter's Basilica, modern, I mean it was like in 1626 I think it was, that's modern for the church. They even extended right over the atrium, the, the, the garden, and they extended the whole basilica out to cover the area that was, had been the garden. So now that's enclosed. And when you walk up the great steps and you walk in the door of St. Peter's Basilica, you're actually walking above the area that was the great garden entrance uh, to, Saint, uh, to um, Constantine's Basilica. <coughs> now it's under roof, of course. <coughs> and um, But as you, as you walk up the aisle and you're approaching the high altar, you realize, okay, I'm, up, I'm approaching the very spot <coughs> where the present altar, the papal altar, is built right over the altar where Constantine <coughs> placed his altar, which is right over the very spot that St. Peter's body was buried the day he was martyred. Now, our writer here, uh, saying Sistine Chapel, it's perfectly understandable he would think that. <clears throat> but the historical reality is the whole basilica was oriented. Uh, you know, long before there was a Sistine Chapel and all the rest that built around it, the, the basilica of St. Peter's 
was the one that was oriented right over the body of St. Peter. And um, <clears throat> to this day, I mean, it is the, the remains of St. Peter down below. This had not been investigated for centuries and centuries until during World War II, a tomb was being prepared, well, actually by Pope Pius the, the 11th. Some would say, well, that was before World War II. World War II didn't start until 41, right? <clears throat> Remember, Lucia said that in, in 38, she saw the red sky, and she knew that was the beginning of World War II. She gauged the beginning of World War II from Hitler's invasion of Austria. <clears throat> she said that was the beginning of World War II. And uh, Pope Pius IX died. Pius XI, I'm sorry, died. They were looking to build a little um, a monument or a tomb for him at St. Peter's Basilica. And the workmen broke through the floor. They actually broke through the floor of the current St. Peter's Basilica and found themselves looking down into a void below. <clears throat> and they realized they had broken through into the Basilica Constantine. And Pope Pius XII, who was the newly elected Pope then, told them, keep going. He said, well, keep it absolutely quiet, absolutely secret. <clears throat> he got a team of, arche of uh, archaeologists together and said, after all these centuries, we have all of this historical evidence, all of this testimony. Go and find this. Follow the evidence. Follow the testimony. Take it where it leads you. <clears throat> now, others might, who had less faith might have said, Ooh, maybe it's best just to cover that over and not, you know, because if we follow it and we get there and there's nothing there, that's a great embarrassment, right? But Pius XII was in trouble with that. He said, follow this and go. And you know, that's exactly what they did. Great archaeologists such as Margarita Balducci, a woman leading the team of archaeologists, this whole study, and, and others too who are, who are members of the team, followed the historical clues under, the, they, they went through the Basilica of Constantine down to the level of the Vatican Hill. I mean, we're talking about meters underground now. Like, it's like digging tunnels, you know. <clears throat> and to lay bare the ground that was above ground and what was in the open air under the sunlight back in 2000, the year, you know, 67 AD, they actually dug their way among these tombs that had been covered over since the year 320. <clears throat> They'd been in their absolute silence and darkness all that time. They not only dug their way down to the walkways among these tombs, they dug their way to the doors <clears throat> or the entranceways. They dug into the tombs. <clears throat> they dug them out. They shored and they had to you know, uh, shore up the basilica uh, above them, you know, because they were under a lot of uh, tons and tons of soil at this point and construction. Uh, but they actually un, uh, shone the light of day, or at least their, their lights, <laughs> on frescoes that had been uh, covered over for centuries and centuries, you know, had been viewed by the human being for centuries and centuries. I mean, I'd say they had slept all those centuries. They found the, the burial urns still in place. They found all of this. Um, it was really, really remarkable. So it became known as the Acropolis, the city of the dead. You know? <clears throat> and uh, they were digging in one direction down this, down this what was a, a pathway or a sidewalk. And they came to a marble slab, and a white marble slab about 
the, the Vatican about near the Tiber. They realized that they were on exactly the right track. But somehow they, they learned, they, they discerned from this that they needed to reverse the direction and go the other way. So they began digging in the other direction, and lo and behold, they, they encountered the Red Wall. That was very significant. They knew it should be there. When they found it, it was kind of a eureka moment, you know. And, and remember, they're not digging with picks and shovels, they're digging with teaspoons sometimes. So they don't lose anything. I mean, this was a lot of work. A lot of careful, careful work. <coughs> they didn't dig, dig through the red wall. They dug around it. <coughs> and around the other side of it. Well, the Hippogea were over here, so they knew it was on the other side. <coughs> right? The tomb of Peter. You know, the, the trophy of Gaius. And there it was, broken down. It was all broken down. It had been covered over. Just made part of the of the degree, the, the foundation for what was built above it, and uh, they entered into the red wall. They dug down below the red wall. They expected to find the uh, remains of Saint Peter, and you know what? They found all this graffiti, all these scratchings, with uh, in uh, Greek and Latin. They had to be deciphered because they were so dense. I mean, these were obviously the works, work, this was the work of centuries, hundreds, thousands of visitors to that spot for scratching anywhere they could find, even using some of the scratchings of people before them to add their own letters. Uh, uh, Margarita Balducci wrote a volume uh, deciphering these, and they all had to do with St. Peter and his remains and seeking prayers. They didn't find the, the remains of St. Peter, though. Strange. <clears throat> Very disappointing. It's like, well, this should be here. Where is it? It's not here. There's an emptiness there. There's nothing there. <clears throat> oh, they had found other things down there. One of them was a wooden box <clears throat> that they thought looked so nondescript. It was actually kind of set into a niche in the wall. They made note of it, put it away, took it to the Vatican, archives or whatever, or the uh, archaeological office, put it away. It took them all to get to it. They didn't think it was of very great importance because it was not 2,000 years old. But when they opened it, they, they found, there they found what they were looking for, the shards of bone. They found some purple cloth, remains of purple cloth, which was the son of royalty, maybe some gilding too. Something that showed that this was very special, the remains of someone very, very special. <coughs> and uh, they found other indications, too. There was enough of the remains left that they could actually do some forensic studies on the person whose bones they were. And uh, now, pretty much the whole honest Christian world understands these, were, these are the remains of St. Peter. Um, as to why they wound up in a wooden box tucked into the wall, there's a whole story. And you know, I'd be more than happy to go into that, but we shouldn't right now. It would not be prudent. But for those who are interested, they're, they're, I mean, this is really a detective story 
of the, of the utmost uh, level. You know, this is top-level detective story here. And um, <clears throat> interestingly enough now, oh, by the way, let, let me just finish this up. This is the definition, this is, this is the destination for our students when they go over to Rome. They have to go here. Uh, they have to take that tour of the Scavi and uh, the excavations under St. Peter's. <clears throat> One year, I was too late. I gave only four months. Because of the uncertainty of the trip, I had only four months, and it was impossible to get reservations. The only consolation I had was one other year, <clears throat> shortly thereafter, when I had succeeded in getting reservations for us, I found out that nobody else at that point could get reservations. There was even a young lady who was a guide through the excavations, and she could not get reservations for her and a couple of her friends, even though she was one of the guides. So I felt that uh, we were very fortunate to be able to do this. Uh, but one has to book these months and months in advance. Uh, they're only allowed to take a total of 300 people down in a week in groups of 12. They say 12, often they'll take up to 15, but it's a real stretch, you know. They don't like to take 15 because they're afraid of the damage of just bringing people through. I mean, it takes a lot of maintenance and upkeep. Um, and uh, let's face it, I mean, people breathing and and all the rest, I mean, it affects what they're, what they're doing there. But <clears throat> finally, they take you through the whole... What they do is retrace the steps of the archaeologists, essentially, and they explain what they found and where they went from there. So it's very instructive. But they finally take you to <clears throat> the remains of St. Peter, and they show you the vials. The, the, um, they have these uh, <clears throat> specially um, sealed, clear containers multiple containers where the, the, the remains, the bones of St. Peter are actually visible. And um, they invite you, actually invite you to pray there, which of course we do. They take you then to the Clementine Chapel where St. Peter, where, where St. Pius X was kneeling in prayer when Cardinal Mary Laval found him, when they got voted in as Pope, you know. And he's kneeling there right to the bones of St. Peter. So, very appropriate. But in any case, um, now um, they say that they have evidence that in a church, Santa Maria uh, della Capella, I think it is, um, which is in Trastevere, uh, the region of Rome to the west of the Tiber, where you have the, the Basilica of St. Cecilia and uh, Santa Maria Trastevere, that area of Rome. Those who've been to Rome know exactly what I'm talking about. They say that in Santa Maria, I think it's Della Capella, they have found two clay containers <clears throat> which have, they, they show evidence of also being of, of the remains of St. Peter. Could this possibly be? Well, yeah. Uh, there's no reason why not. We know that the, the, the remains of St. Peter were actually removed from under the Vatican at one point and carried away for safety from because of invasions and returned to... Actually, the, the bones of St. Paul and St. Peter were removed from under the basilicas 
and uh, actually contained there, kept for safekeeping in the catacombs of St. Sebastian, Sebastian for a while. And we see the evidence in the graffiti of the pilgrims going there and asking Saints Peter and Paul, pray for the family of Fortunatus or whatever, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> and then uh, the remains returned to their respective basilicas. So the idea that the, uh, you know, there would be bones of St. Peter that might have been um, uh, kept even for safekeeping in a chapel such as Santa Maria, I think it's de la Capella, in Trastevere, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, anybody who has a relic of St. Peter has actually a part of those remains of St. Peter, where, wherever they happen to be, take the relic. So that there'll be another chapel in Rome that would ha also share some of those remains of St. Peter. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's a tremendous find. It's just been found. And there's a lot of... It, evidently, it's pretty credible. And the, uh, the remains of St. Peter there, if in fact they prove to be... Um, um, are also interred with uh, what have been identified by uh, inscriptions or whatever. Uh, the remains of early popes uh, Cornelius and, uh, and um, uh, Callistus, I think, is one of them, and Felix. <clears throat> uh, and again, this would not be unusual at all. Because even where the body of St. Peter was originally buried on the Vatican Hill, the earliest popes to die as martyrs after St. Peter were actually buried around the remains of St. Peter. They have the, the tombs of the others radiating out from that central point where St. Peter was buried. Linus, Clatus, Clemens, Sisters. Uh, actually, we have the relics in our church, uh, Immaculate Conception, um, the relics of St. Linus and St. Clatus in the high altar, St. Clement of Rome, and uh, uh, St. Calixtus in the uh, St. Joseph altar. So to honor those early popes, we wanted those, uh, the, those relics there here too. So uh, it'll be interesting when we take the students to Rome this year, God willing we will, we have a group uh, probably of about oh, 25 to 30 people going. Uh, we're going to go to that little chapel. We've never been there. I've never been there anyway. Never taken the students there. Uh, and to see uh, where the research has taken them. Uh, oh, by the way, by the way, um, actually, I've got to be careful about this. I want to see the chapel. But I understand that these these uh, clay containers have been removed to the Vatican for study, so you won't find them at the, at that chapel in Just Avery anymore. Um, so anyway, interesting things, you know, interesting things. The point is, Tobias XII uh, turned the archaeologist loose and said, a "Scientist, go where you have to go, <clears throat> find what you find, you know, and report what you find." And it was <clears throat> stunning confirmation. Not stunning insofar as it was confirmation, but stunning insofar as the exactness of the traditional records of the Church and all her monuments pointing to the truth of, yes, St. Peter was not only Bishop of Rome and, the, and Vicar of Christ on Earth as the Pope, 
But yes, his remains are buried underneath the high altar of the Basilica of St. Peter, even as the historical record now attested and now absolutely shows against all of the gainsayers who were insisting that it must not be true. Well, guess what? <clears throat> They're wrong. Will they admit it now? <clears throat> well, only by the grace of God. Will they actually have, they will admit it, that it is true. Sure. Uh, this, this is all very, very fascinating, and I, I hate to go from the beautiful life of St. Peter to his antithesis and, and Francis, but we have about five or ten minutes left, Father, and uh, it seems we've, we've been uh, the are, last... Are you, are you implying that we've kind of been wandering, <laughs> no, wandering underground through digs here? For the, for the, <laughs> spoonful by spoonful. For the last couple of programs now, we've kind of avoided the uh, talking about Francis. So. Uh, yes, right. right. I, I guess inevitably... Uh, he's got... He's got even the archaeologists had to come up to the surface and <laughs> face the... He's he's been in Harsh the, he's been in the news though recently, Father, for uh, for several things. For uh, the one thing is is his recent decision in regards to the the vernacular translations of the mass of how he has kind of decentralized that where it's not uh, the the authority of the Vatican, of the Vatican anymore to kind of regulate the translations the translations of the vernacular of the mass. He's given that to local bishops. So would you have any comments on that? There's also been. His ordeal, where he, uh, it, where in his trip to South America, where he he hit his head Columbia, in, in, in in Colombia down there. We I think we're all kind of hoping that that would knock some sense into him. But alas, our uh, our hopes were dashed there on that same I believe on the same day was when the report came out concerning uh, climate change during some interview where he said how man is stupid, essentially something to that effect for not seeing the dangers of climate change, how it's not. Um, it's not a, a joking matter. We need to listen to the scientists on this. We need to do something about it. It's a moral issue. Do you have any comments on the uh, the Francis Circus going on, Father? Well, other than just saying that uh, he really ought to take a rowboat across the Atlantic rather than a jet and be driving a, a Tesla electric vehicle rather <laughs> yeah. than a popmobile if he really were sincere about worrying about the environment because he's burning fossil fuels left and right. Um, and in that, he, he has a lot in common with Al Gore and so many others who are so concerned about the environment, you know. Um, but, you know, Tom, there's so much to be said about this. Um, one of the, we ought to do one of those 24-hour marathons here, where we just, uh, but in any case, and if we could do that, all I'm just talking about Francis says and does. We could. And, <laughs> but we, we, should, we shouldn't. In any case, with regard to... Um, Let's see, where do we start here? Um, Francis, uh, well, you know, recently he came out and he said, my reforms are unreformable, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm the great reformer, and what I'm going to reform, I'm going to reform all this tradition, cut it away, but no one better dare reform my reforms, you know, because they're infallible. Yeah. This is magisterial, you know? And so, again, he is absolutely, well, we could say he is delusional and could say if a, if, a, if a pope began talking like that, that he had lost his mind, which was one of the grounds for actually announcing that a pope had somehow uh, become insane and, and the, the papacy would have to pass to another at that point, because effectively, I mean, he had died, you know. Um, but 
uh, with Francis, it's not a matter of insanity. It's a matter of his belief, or lack of it, lack of Catholic belief. This is how he views the papacy. In his hands, the papacy is the voice of the people. That's infallible. And the people have spoken, and that's... But the strange thing is, not only are the modernists, a la Francis, continuing to reform their own reforms every year or two. They're coming out with new versions of these things. And he says, my reform, these reforms now of, of you know, all my last, my predecessors are irreformable. You can't go back. But he's continually reforming them in making them more and more so, you know. So again, he's contradicting himself. But remember, to a modernist, that, that that doesn't matter. That's actually again a sign of vitality. Mm-hmm. That this is if you can contradict yourself, it shows you're alive. You know? Changes the tradition. Of the Changes church. the tradition of the church. That's right. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So here he is <clears throat> contradicting himself out of his own mouth. You know, within within is the same sentence. <coughs> using contradictory terminology. And to him, it's just wonderful, because that's what modernism is all about. <clears throat> but not only is he saying <clears throat> that these reforms are unreformable, but he's continuing to reform them <clears throat> on the fly as they go. But modernism itself says everything is constantly changing anyway. <clears throat> so how is he to say <clears throat> you can't reform in that direction, you can only reform in this direction? I mean, who is he to say that as a modernist? He, uh, he will determine uh, for the future what changes, the, the only kinds of changes that can be allowed. He's going to dictate that for the future. He's going to dictate that to his modernist successors, you know, to the world of the future, to the generation with its own concept of God and so on. I mean, who does this man think he is? <clears throat> well, unfortunately... There you get into the delusional part of of modernism. But in any case, um, it's such utter nonsense. It's hard to believe anyone would take him seriously at this point. But they do. Some people do. And then, so he goes into this thing where he he talks about, uh, what was the first thing you mentioned there? I'm sorry. With the translations. Okay, thank you. Now he's going to have the translations. So he's... Remember, Cardinal Saper said back in the 1980s, maybe even the 1970s, in the in Liservatore Romano, uh, there was published a statement that he made. He was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He said, look, with all of these translations out there, we cannot vouch for their validity. We can vouch for, vouch for the Latin original of the New Mass and so on, but we can't vouch for the validity of the translations. I mean, that was like a bolt, thunderbolt telling the, the, the Catholic people at the time that the Vatican cannot guarantee that the translations that are being given are even valid. Well, did they even care? I don't know at that point. Some of them did. But this is how far things had deteriorated. Now Francis is saying, basically, he's turning everything over to these Bishops' conferences. They're going to produce their own translations. The Vatican is not going to screen them for validity, for doctrine, for theology. No, Francis is just continuing in his rampage to destroy the Catholic Church, or what's left of it now, as an institution, by by taking the authority 
that the papacy should have and just dispersing it to others who don't have it, at the same time arrogating to himself authority that the Pope doesn't have, that no Pope ever had, and can't possibly have, to dismantle the traditions of the Church. So this is man, I mean, if this man doesn't meet the definition of an anti-Pope, because he represents the anti-Papacy, as the Church has always understood it to be. But in any case, um, he's going to turn this over to the bishops' conferences now, uh, when it's already been stated by one of the central functionaries of the, the change agents of the, of the modernists, way back at the, in the, at the origins of this, that the Vatican can't, test, can't, can't vouch for the validity of this. And Francis is just saying, basically, eh, who cares? We're going to let them take, care, take it from here. You know, in other words, we we just let them take care of it and handle it. We don't have nothing to do with it. Well, okay, fine, you know. So, I mean, at what point does he simply abdicate, you know? If he's abdicating responsibility, well, anyway, you get the point. So, um, this is just another, another large step down the path of modernist chaos, that the, the ringmaster of modernism, Francis, I mean, they talk about the evil clowns now. I mean, well, okay. What's the next uh, thing? What climate change, how man is stupid for not, not seeing the... Okay, uh, so man does not see climate change, okay. Well, let, let's just... Uh, what, what if we all said the, the problem is not climate change. The climate is constantly changing, constantly changing. We have records of that, scientific records. What The question is whether we're doing it, whether we're causing it to happen, and what what controls that the governments, especially Francis's much-desired um, world government, is going to impose on us because of it. That's the whole point. And this, the whole issue of this is not whether the climate is changing. <clears throat> It has nothing to do with this. The question is uh, that, yes, climate is continually changing. We all know that. The issue is whether we're doing it. It's our fault. And we're changing the climate in an undesirable way by uh, emissions and uh, gas emissions and so on. Um, and uh, what... Um, world tyranny is going to then use this as the excuse to impose uh, its dictatorship over every man, woman, and child um, on the face of the earth. That's the issue. Francis is a cheerleader for that, and a very powerful one, because he's telling people that Catholics have to accept that. They have to. I mean, at the same time, he is disparaging the very idea of dogma. He's creating his own dogmas. Okay? His worldly dogmas. Remember when Peter was arguing with our Lord, you will never be crucified. Stop saying that. You know it's not true. Don't say things like that. No, 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 I won't hear of it. And our Lord says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a scandal to me because you're mind the things of man, not the things of God. Well, I mean, this is Francis all over again. And this is Francis. Get to, get to be hungry, Satan, you're a scandal to me. 
You know, there were those who ripped Seda the Countess up one side and down the other and, and accused him of all kinds of things. And sometimes Seda the Countess really are blameworthy, you know. They, they make it like it's, that's the whole religion right there, you know. Um, but they, the, the people who are, who are attacking the Seda the Countess in principle have to realize that they're attacking the wrong, they're, they're blaming the wrong people. It is their own popes who have scandalized these people. When our Lord said to Peter, you are a scandal to me. Well, what would he say about Francis? Minding the things of man and not the things of God? Oh, my goodness. That's, that's Francis to a, to a T. And uh, they become Satan to mankind. They become the scandal to mankind. Um, so, um, and this, these are the new dogmas of Francis, the world church of Francis. So um, he's the one beating the drum for these things. It reminds us exactly what Nubius, to return to something we said earlier in the program, about the Masonic leader of Italy, saying the kind of pope they would want to lead the way for the Masonic revolution, a man who would speak the Masonic doctrines of the, and uh, who would lead the world in the direction of the Masonic um, uh, cult and culture of the moment, modern day, you know, canonizing that. Um, and that's exactly what Francis is doing in his climate change business, okay? But he, he's already called, as has Paul VI, as has even John Paul II, as has, Paul VI, as has uh, John XXIII, before any of them, for a world authority, a world government to control these things. Um, and don't think the Novus Ordo Catholics, the New Order Catholics, an oxymoron if ever there is one, who are following Francis in this and hearkening to his voice, uh, don't think that they're not falling in line with this new orthodoxy, which is the old unorthodoxy or heterodoxy. They're falling in line with the idea, yes, we must get in line with the global warming one-worlders now, if we, if we want to be loyal followers of Francis. <clears throat> so he's the point man for the, for the enemies of Christ in the world today. He's the point man for the enemies of the church, the Catholic church, and the traditional Catholic faith in the world today. <clears throat> he is supposed to get the Catholic people, or those who still want to be, even if they don't even know what it means anymore, following him in this great revolutionary anti-crusade uh, to, toward the one world government, the one world religion. And um, that's exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Father, recently in the program we, we mentioned uh, Pope St. Pius X, who just recently celebrated his feast day too, and I think that it's so telling to compare and contrast him with Francis, you know, one of the the first things that, that Pope St. Pius X did was, um, was, was issue reforms of, of church music. He was so, so intent on, on uh, doing his papal duty and actually, I mean, ensuring that every note of music that was played during, during, the, uh, during the Mass was, was appropriate and fitting. And now here we have Francis who says, I don't even care what language you say Mass, I don't even care what, what you say, it doesn't even matter up to you, whatever you go for it. Well, he's already said he's against doctrine, he's against dogma. Yeah. Uh, these are these are, are not um, of importance to him. In fact, he's, he's going to condemn the whole idea. Mm-hmm. But again, modernists do. They condemn dogma because they're unchangeable truths. And to a modernist, <laughs> that whole idea is abhorrent. 
You know, they, 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 they deny there even exist such things, and they say that these are the things that are against the ongoing <clears throat> religious uh, experience that, that drives the evolutionary process, the spiritual evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, dogma is the enemy. Dogma is like the poison. You have to destroy dogma. Dogmas are there to be destroyed. And so, no wonder he doesn't care if they're reflected in these. Uh, the one thing you can't have is the traditional mass and the traditional sacraments because they still stand for the traditional orthodoxy and dogmas. <clears throat> so they cannot be tolerated. <clears throat> Father, I thought it was so telling too in, that, in his uh, interview on climate change where he talked about the scientific cons- consensus on this matter and said how we need to listen to scientists on this and how <clears throat> climate change is true because scientists say it is. And that just tells you right there that he has no concept, of, no, no grasp of, of truth. You know, truth yeah. is the consensus, basically. Well, it, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> read, Tom, good point. Read Pashendi. Yeah. This is what he's saying. Yeah. He's saying that the church must, in her teachings must be subject to the governments of the world, the civil authority, and must be subject to science. Her yeah. teachings must be subject to science. It's, it's just astounding that Father, even just, I believe it was today, on Rush Limbaugh on his program, he talked about this, of how there's no such thing as a scientific consensus. It's either true or it's not true. It doesn't matter if 100% of all the scientists in the whole world say something yeah. is true. That, that means absolutely nothing if it's not actually true. There's actually real objective truth. But that's totally foreign. That idea is totally foreign to Francis. No. Uh, unfortunately, you're right. And... Uh, Again, it gets back to the, the, the sadness that people are actually following that right. as a, that is the voice of Catholicism in the world today. What a tragedy um, that the enemies of the church consider that Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the um, uh, adherents, would-be adherents, consider that to be the voice of Catholicism today. Mm-hmm. I, I'm telling you, uh, you know, in Francis' mind, it, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, it's the Roman Catholic Circus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to say that he is the ringmaster is being, is being generous because he plays the part of the clown so often. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but, I mean, when I say this, I mean, it sounds terribly impious and irreverent to say this. I'm just saying what Francis himself has already said. He's already said that people should enjoy the liturgy. <clears throat> That somehow the liturgy has failed, not the people. The liturgy has failed. If the people don't enjoy the liturgy, well, what's a circus, right? Entertain the greatest show on earth. Francis. Well, I mean, maybe maybe Stephen King will cast Francis in some future movie of his. I mean, he's making lots and lots of money over the movie It right now. And with the evil clowns, and maybe maybe Stephen King and Francis, I, I mean Stephen King, I think is very liberal politics. Maybe he'll see that he and Francis can actually um, um, really um, make something really meaningful, <laughs> you know, or get together and and um, produce some fantastic liturgical experiences where everybody will have a great time. And uh, they'll, they'll both get rich doing it. I, I don't know. Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing. <clears throat> Neither uh, Francis is, uh, Francis's <clears throat> words and actions 
are no more Roman Catholicism tradition than Stephen King's characters in his novels. And so uh, those who are, are, are actually following either as for their spiritual enlightenment and, and to find uh, you know to find God in faith they're, they're, they're lost whether they're following Francis or Stephen King I mean they're not going to find true faith there so it might seem very obvious but unfortunately it's not obvious enough uh, to enough people so um I, 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 what can I say? I, I just ask people to wake up and smell the incense, you know, come back to the traditional faith and mm -hmm. recognize what they're following and realize it's not, it's not Catholicism. It's not the Catholic Church. It's not, it's not Christ. Right. We, we read that article last week, Father, about uh, the, this Catholic writer who mentioned someone bringing their dog to church, uh, a Novus Ordo church, and he thought that was a, a perfect <laughs> symbolism of how he said the, the modern church is going to the dogs, and uh, I, I think that... Hey, uh, take it easy. I mean, on dogs. <laughs> take it easy on the dogs. The dogs have never sinned. Yeah. You know? Did they give the dog communion? Did they give the dog the wafer? I mean, would Catholics even react today? Would they think, oh, isn't that cute? Probably. Some of them might think, oh, isn't that sweet? You know. And actually, I could make a case. It would be far less evil than giving communion to Bill Clinton. Yeah. Wow. I'm scared that. Yeah. Right? Wow. So, uh, I mean, sad as it is, this is what it comes to. The dog might have been the most devout person there. I'm a person, I mean. <clears throat> You know, Prophet Isaiah talks about the, 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 the ox and the donkey recognizing it's their master in the manger, but not, not the people, you know. And um, there are examples in the lives of the saints of donkeys kneeling down, as it were, before the Blessed Sacrament, <laughs> while the people are scoffing, you know, about... So... Um, you know, here's Francis, who says as a boy he used to mock the Mass even while he was serving it, tripping, trying to trip up the priest in the prayers, having a big, making a big joke out of it. Well, guess what? Now he's doing that professionally. Yeah. Congratulations, Francis. You know, you made the big time. Now you can really make a mockery of the, of the liturgy. And um, uh, the, um, well, anyway, I know, I know we could go on and on about him because he goes on and on. Every time he goes, flies from one place to another, he gives the press free reign to ask questions. And it's one betise after another that he comes out with. Um, but, you know, you just have to pray for the people to, to have the scales fall from their eyes and recognize that, uh, you know, even those who have a hard time emotionally accepting the reality, because it shakes them, they eventually they have to realize, well, you know, whether it can be or it can't be, it is. The fact is, it is happening. <clears throat> and rather than say, well, gee, if, if I believed this was happening with Francis and all of his pomps and, and, uh, and all, all of his devices and so on, if I believed I'd lose my faith, as someone told me once, they ought to say, no, 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 my faith <clears throat> is not in Francis, my faith is in Christ. 
So if I see that a man like Francis is now in that position in the Vatican wearing the robes and he has the address and all, but he's saying these terrible things against the faith, then maybe my, I need to uh, rethink my faith and make it not so much dependent on man, but to be totally dependent on Christ and realize that my, I have to follow Jesus Christ and the traditional faith and, and, and the traditional Catholic religion. That's where I have to go at this time. Um, and that's what they, they all should do. You know, that's the only way they're going to find solid ground faith-wise, because otherwise it's, it's just chaos out there. You know, St. John Bosco said it very well in his dreams. He, he saw the, the entire world like a gigantic sea, an enormous storm. It's kind of a, um, uh, ironic that we're talking about that now after Irma. <clears throat> and the whole world like focused on that gigantic storm. <clears throat> St. John Bosco dreamed about the whole world being engulfed by a tremendous storm. And the, and the church making its way in this storm-tossed sea. And even in the middle of the, of the tempest, the church is being attacked from all sides by enemies. But she's slowly, laboriously, painfully making her way through this storm and through this battle to two enormous pillars rising out of the sea, like the bedrock, the unmovable through the wind and the wave of the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and the traditional Mass, the true Mass, because that's what he saw, that's what he offered. And the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. He saw those as two pillars. And when the church managed to gain uh, entry to right between them and secure herself to those two doctrines, to two, two dogmas, then the storm winds died out, the sea settled down, the enemies disappeared, and the church found a great calm. That we can interpret as the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, of course. And uh, that's what we all have to be pushing toward. That's what we have to be focusing on. And Our Lady told us that uh, an important element of the Church finding that safety, that safe haven, is consecrating ourselves to our Immaculate Heart. And Perhaps that would be a good uh, opportunity for you to say, well, Father, uh, <laughs> Time to, time to close and feel that way. So I'm going to give you the opening to that. Sounds good. Okay. okay. I'm sure there are people out there saying yes, this is the perfect opening. <laughs> uh, Father, you know, when we talked tonight about, about St. Saint, Saint Peter and, and St. Pius X, I think that, that these times right now call for a lot of prayers to two real popes right there. And today mm. is the, the feast day of the Holy Name of Mary. So I don't think right. we could do much, much better than that. <clears throat> right, right. And the feast day that was established to commemorate the battle of the the raising of the siege in Vienna in 1683, mm -hmm. the Muslim siege of Vienna. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful day, day after 9-11. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we turn to Our Lady in these great, great trials. Definitely. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. Absolutely, Tom. Thank, thank you very no much. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.